This morning, um, we're going to start chapter 3 of uh, chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel. Um, you're going to notice that today, uh, this, this passage marks a really different direction, a different shift in the way Jesus has been dealing with the people that he's encountered in Jerusalem. Um, up until this point, since the triumphal entry, Jesus has he's been kind of unobtrusive. He's been in the in the okay, except for that whole chasing the money changers and stuff out of the courtyard. That was pretty in your face. But he comes into the temple court and he's teaching and he's ministering and he's healing people. And when the Pharisees and the priests and the elders and the Sadducees came and they questioned him, he answered them. But he answered them from his position from his activity as a teacher. He answered their questions. Um, even up to his arrival in Jerusalem, for the most part, where Jesus has been, he has been focused on teaching his disciples what living in God's kingdom looks like, how it's supposed to change our inward thoughts and our motivations and our desires, and that is what impacts the way we live outwardly, Right? So what, what the gospel does to us inside is what drives what happens on the outside. There have been very, very, very few occasions up to this point in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has gone on the offensive against his opponents. Now I say that, and it might be hard for us to believe that that's the case, but really, even when Jesus has been answering these questions from the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the Sadducees, he has not been assaulting them. He's just been answering their question. When they came to him and they asked where his authority came from, he answered the question. Where did John's authority come from? You don't know? I'm not going to tell you the answer. He wasn't attacking them. When they came and they asked him, was it lawful to pay the tax to the Romans? His response to them, well, whose picture's on the coin? Caesar's picture's on the coin. Then give Caesar what's his due, but give God what his due is too. He didn't attack. When the Sadducees, now this is as close to attacking as he came, when they came to him and they asked the question about the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be in the resurrection? He said, you guys don't understand God's word. You don't understand God's power. You're, you're really missing the point. But he's still not really on the attack. Here in chapter 23, he kind of takes on the role of an Old Testament prophet. And he pronounces judgment against the hypocrisy of all the religious leaders, namely the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, in Jerusalem. This actually is kind of like the, the second half of his pronouncement of judgment when he cursed the fig tree. Remember when he was coming to Jerusalem and he saw the fig tree and he was hungry? And so he went to the fig tree because it looked like it would have had figs on it, but it didn't. All it had was leaves. So this is, this is the actual verbal curse upon the hypocrisy of the leaders, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Um, it's actually, this entire chapter is one main thought. In scripture, generally, um, especially if you have one of those Bibles that has the little study headings in between the paragraphs. Not all of them do, but some of them do. Um, they're normally in a different kind of print. They're either bold or they're in caps or they're italicized. And it just kind of gives you an idea of what the main topic for that paragraph or that section has to do with. Chapter 23 is one unified thought. The whole of chapter 23. So to make it a little bit easier for us to deal with, we're going we're gonna to take it in relatively small pieces. I'm only going to do the first 15 verses today because I want us to understand the behaviors and the heart issues that cause them that Jesus is dealing with. Okay? So if you would, stand with me for our reading this morning. This is from chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, 
The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for the hard words that Jesus spoke against his opponents. Father, I pray that we would learn, that we would not just point and say, well, those Pharisees were were way off base, but that we would learn and see where we have the same tendencies, where we have the the ability to go the same direction that they did. And Father, help us to to turn away from that and to be more Christ-like when we deal with people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So, we know that Jesus is not a fan of the Pharisees, right? We know that. But in verse 2, he actually says something really complimentary towards them. Did did you catch that when I was reading it? Verse 2, they sit in Moses' seat, and then in verse 3, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Jesus wants his followers to recognize that the Pharisees do have a legitimate teaching office that they are occupying, that they are in a legitimate place of authority. They they have a legitimate purpose. When he says they sit in Moses' seat, what was Moses' role in Israel's history? He was a leader, he was a teacher, he was a prophet, right? He spoke God's law. He was the giver of the law to the people. He didn't, not just the Ten Commandments, right? He didn't just carry them down the mountain the second time without breaking them, right? He didn't just take the Ten Commandments to the people, but all of the book of Exodus, where the, the instructions for the tabernacle are given, where the instructions for the law are starting to be set out. The book of uh, Leviticus, where he lays out basically the entire legal code for the people of Israel. The book of Numbers, where there are some religious laws that are given out. The book of Deuteronomy, where he basically says everything over again that he taught in Exodus and Leviticus. Moses is the lawgiver. In fact, when you read in the New Testament, most of the time when somebody in the New Testament is talking about Moses... They're talking about the first five books of the Bible, not just the man. So when Jesus says they sit in the seat of Moses, he is really talking about their legitimacy as teachers in the nation of Israel. They have a legitimate purpose. They're experts in the law. And their teaching to avoid sin wasn't in error. So let me let me explain this, all right? The Pharisees, we've talked about where they came from. We talked about their history. The Pharisees never once set out and said, okay, today we're going to lead the people of God to sin. They didn't do that. They studied the law. They learned the law. They understood the law so that when people came to them and said, tell me how I can avoid sinning, I'm struggling with this particular part of the law, the Pharisees would be able to tell them how to avoid it, right? Now, if the front of the platform represents sin, 
the Pharisees would interpret so as to put a guardrail up before somebody stepped across that boundary. That makes sense. Jesus here says that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But then he says don't follow their behavior because they don't practice what they preach. So the offense of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. They interpret the law. They make these boundaries. They set up this guardrail, okay? So here's this guardrail. How do I avoid violating God's Sabbath? That was a big one. How do I keep from from violating the Sabbath and making it profane? Well, God says you're not supposed to work. Okay, define for me what work is. All right, well, harvesting is work. Okay, that's easy. I won't pick anything out of the garden. Well, okay, um, carrying a burden is work. Okay, so I, I won't carry a burden, but I have an infant. Is it a burden to carry the infant? No, it's not a burden to carry the infant. That's ministry because the infant can't walk. Okay, but if the infant has something in his hands, now you're carrying a burden. Okay, all right, so it, now we laugh about that, but they're earnestly seeking to keep people from crossing the line, right? How far can I walk without it becoming work? Well, you can walk a mile. Okay, that's easy. I can walk a mile. Now, I can walk a mile from where? I can walk a mile from where I happen to be when the Sabbath starts, or I can walk a mile from home. You can walk a mile from home. Okay, what constitutes home? Home is where your possessions are. All right, good, I got it. So I can only walk a mile from home on the Sabbath. Yes. So here's what the Pharisees would do. Thursday, they would take something from their home and they would place it nine-tenths of a mile away from their house. Then when the Sabbath started, they are at home. How far can I walk on the Sabbath without it being work? I can walk a mile. So I'm going to walk to my possessions, right? A mile from my possessions, my home. So I'm going to walk a mile. Oh, look, it's my bottle of water. It's my possession. Therefore, it's my home. Therefore, I can walk another mile from that point. Right? How far are they walking? So they set up these guardrails for people. And then... They go around them. <laughs> I didn't jump off the edge, right? So it's not technically sin. I used a loophole. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says that they tie up these heavy burdens, they put them on people's backs, but then themselves, they won't move it with a finger. They'll have a loophole. They'll make a way that they can get around it. Did God say you can only walk a mile on the Sabbath? No. He said don't work. Were they working? Not necessarily. But you know what they did was they convinced the people that to walk more than a mile was violating God's law. See the problem? They inferred that violating their guardrail was the same as violating God's law. What that does, and this is, this is, I know this is not a popular word, but this is the legitimate dictionary definition of the word legalism. Setting up false boundaries and telling people that their position in God's kingdom is dependent upon them keeping that boundary. We can't do that. That's what they were doing. We can't do that. Now, Jesus keeps going. He says that uh, all of their deeds, they do for recognition. All of the righteousness that they do, their prayer in the synagogue, right? Jesus told the parable about the, 
<laughs> the, the, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee praying in the synagogue, right? He, he told this story. He says, okay, you've got these two men, they walk into the synagogue to pray. And you have the tax collector over here, off to the side, on his own, away from everybody. He falls on his knees. He plants his face in the dirt and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? Now that's a healthy recognition of how we stand before God. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the Pharisee who walks into the synagogue, right? And everybody knows when he walks into the synagogue because he's an imposing figure. He's got these long tassels on his prayer shawl. He's got these giant phylacteries attached to his arm and his, his forehead. And we'll talk about those in a minute. And he gets to the front of the synagogue and he prays. Now, his posture isn't necessarily the problem, but here's how he would pray. He'd throw his arms out to the side and throw his head back. And his prayer was, thank you for making me righteous. Thank you that I'm not like that guy, a sinner. Yes, because the sin of pride isn't that big, right? They're tithing. When they would bring in their herbs from their garden, they would make sure everybody knew just exactly how much dill and mint and cumin they were bringing in for their tithe. They would make sure everybody knew that they were bringing in the best newborn male sheep from their flock, the best bullock, the best, they made sure everybody knew what they were doing. All of their outward piety was done so that they could show people what a righteous life looked like. Now, remember I said they never once, nowhere in a heretic's life, do you ever find an admonition that they set out one morning and said, today I'm going to lead the people of God astray. When the Pharisees started, why did they make a big deal of what they were tithing? To teach the people what tithing looked like. Why did they make a big deal about their prayers? To teach people what the prayers of the righteous look like. The problem is pride. Because all of a sudden, when I come in with my tithe and they notice just exactly how perfect this lamb is, right? Or this, this pile of herbs that I brought in from the garden or, or the, how, how, how much there is in this bag of money, right? When the people notice that, after everything's over at the synagogue, after everything's over at the temple, what's going to happen? People are going to come up to them. Say, man, I really wish I could have that same level of righteousness that you've got. You must be so close to God because He's blessed you so richly to be able to provide all this stuff. And you and God, man, you're like, you're like this. The proper attitude, <laughs> the humble attitude, no, it's by God's grace that I do what I do. But you can only hear that so many times before you start believing your own press. Yes, I am that righteous. Thank you for asking. Yes, me and God, we, I, I spend a constant three hours in prayer per day. I always fast on Fridays. And, you know, most of the time I fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays as well. Because that's what the righteousness requires of me. That's what God asks of His servants. If you truly want to be righteous, do what I do. It starts to feed pride. It starts to feed ego. And when that happens, our motivations change. I may start out by giving everything to God because I want to give everything to God. And it's very easy to go from I'm giving everything to God because I want to to I'm giving everything to God because I want everybody to see that I've done it. Remember when I talked about their tassels and their phylacteries? Anybody know what a phylactery is? Raise your hand if you know what a phylactery is. 
Okay. I had, I had to go look it up. I knew what it was, but being the person that I am, I had to go look it up. I had to go read the definition, figure out where it came from. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 9, Moses is explaining the Passover to the Jews. And he says, this is going to be a lasting ordinance for our people forever. And he says, you will bind it on your hand. It will be a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. Now, I really don't think what Moses was talking about was you need to write this down and wear it on your arm and tie it to your forehead. I, I really, I don't really think that's what Moses meant. Right? What do our hands do? Work, right? So when Moses is talking about it'll be a, as a sign on your hand, he's talking about it'll be present in your mind in the works that you do, keeping God's commands and remembering how God has done for you. And it will be as a reminder on your forehead. What, what is behind my forehead? What do I do with my brain? Hopefully, right? We think. We remember. So what Moses is talking about there is that it's going to be constant in your mind and when you do things as a reminder for what God's done for you. And the reason we celebrate it over and over and over again. Why? Because we want to be reminded of what God's done for us. However, as the religion of the Jews began to take more of a refined shape through the exile... So from uh, 525, 535 B.C. through to the time that Jesus appears, what has happened now is that the, 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 really, the religious Jews, the Orthodox Jews, would get a little box, and on that little box, or in that little box rather, there would be a piece of vellum, right, really fancy paper, and on it would be written four passages of Scripture, four short passages. And one was from Genesis, I forget which one it was. One's from Exodus, one's from the Psalms, and I forget where the, the fourth one's from. I, I didn't really pay that close attention to it, right? And it'd be just a little tiny piece of paper. It'd be rolled up like a little scroll, and it would be in this little little leather box that was tied on their left arm. Why? because you'd open it with your right hand, right? And they would have a headband, right? Now, all I can think of are those knit headbands that everybody wore in the 70s and the 80s. <laughs> It'd be a leather thong with this leather box that would be right there on their forehead, right? So they took Moses' words and turned them literal. It will be bound to your arm. It will be bound to your forehead as a reminder. <laughs> okay. Right? But look at what Jesus says about the Pharisees. They make their phylacteries broad. So instead of this little tiny modest leather box, right? They've got like this scroll case. Instead of just having these short little passages of scripture, right? And think of it this way. The normal Jew would have the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Everybody knows that. It's a relatively short little psalm, right? The Pharisees would have Psalm 119. <laughs> the longest passage in the Bible. So they've got, they're walking around with like this Christmas box tied to their arm and this shoe box tied to their forehead. That's, why would you do that? Because that shows everybody how righteous I am. That shows everybody how important God's word is. Right? Think about, <laughs> think about, this, this is like the difference between that kid who carries the little Gideon's New Testament to, to, to school with him and the kid that carries the giant MacArthur study Bible to church with him, right? I'm not saying either one's right or wrong, but you know who I'm talking about. You can remember those people from school, 
right? You had the, the kids whose faith was, was relatively quiet. I'm not saying that they, they were blasting everybody, but they didn't make a show out of hauling around this. I always carry my Bible with me. Seriously? Like, this is your daily reader. No. No, why would you do that? Just to get people's attention. Just to get people to say, man, look at how seriously he takes God's word. Then Jesus says they make their tassels long. In the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, God tells the Jewish men to make tassels for the corners of their garments. Their outer shawl, basically, right? In the United States, men tend not to wear shawls. Women wear them, men don't. In Israel, the men would wear a a shawl. You can still see it. If you watch Orthodox Jews, when they pray, uh, you'll see them at the Wailing Wall. You'll see them in uh, uh, synagogues. You'll see them coming out of synagogues. They'll have that shawl, right? It's generally white, and it's got blue stripes, And on the four corners, there are tassels. God said, put the tassels on the corners of the garments to use them as a visual reminder of God's law. Now, I'm paraphrasing from from Numbers and Deuteronomy. God says, use them as a reminder of my law because you will be prone to following your own heart. So why were the tassels there? Okay. Okay. You ever walk around wearing something that has tassels on it? Right? Like a high school graduation? You got the cap, right? When you walk in a cap and gown and that little tassel is swinging, right? It is constantly in your face. Always. I went <laughs> Friday afternoon, I went to the commissary to get some groceries, right? Now, this was not a tassel. This was a hair from my head, Right? It had come loose and was hanging in front of my right eye. However, I couldn't see it when I took my sunglasses off before I put my glasses on. Now, my eyes aren't that bad. It just wasn't in focus. When I put my glasses on, it was now moved into that area close enough, far enough from my eyeball where I could see it. So I thought it was on my glasses. So as I'm walking into the store, trying to get this hair off my glasses. There's no hair on my glass. It's right in front of my eyeball. Right? God says, put the tassels on your outer garment to remind you of my law. Why? Because when you're praying, when you're walking around with that thing on, you've got four tassels swinging in the breeze, getting your attention. They're there. So the Pharisees, they'd go to Joanne Fabrics or Hancock Fabrics, and they would get tassels that were super long. Why? Because they're showy. Because they're big. Because they're obviously so much more righteous. Now, personally, if you ask me, the longer the tassel, that means the more reminder you need of God's law, right? But they were using it as a status symbol. They were using it as a pride symbol. So when when the Pharisee comes strolling into the... I'm a real visual person, so I'm reading Jesus' description here. They make their phylacteries broad. So now I'm seeing this guy who's got a, an Operation Christmas Child shoebox on his forehead and one tied to his arm, and he's wearing a tassel over, or a, a shawl over his head that's got these dust broom tassels that are sweeping the floor as he walks in. Right? He's going to stick out in the crowd, and when he gets into the synagogue, what happens? Oh, oh, Rabbi, Rabbi, come on up to the front, man. You need to sit. You are so righteous. You need to sit right up here in the place of honor. Hey, move. That's, that's, that's Rabbi's seat. You can't sit there. Sit, sit back here. You haven't bathed in a week. Sit back here. Right? They were seeking the recognition. They were seeking all of the honor at a, at a feast. Right? I absolutely... <laughs> this is not who I am. 
But when I have gone to potluck dinners or I have gone to uh, anything where there's a buffet or something like that, and somebody recognized me and says, oh, pastor, come on, go ahead, you first. No. No, not me first. That's not who I am. I wasn't raised to be that way. That's just so antithetical. But but when they walk in, oh, Rabbi, come on to the front of the line. Well, thank you. And we've got a table set up for you right over here. That's how the Pharisees conducted themselves. Why would Jesus tell everybody, listen to the things that they teach you, but don't do what they do? Even even the title rabbi. Now, I will tell you, I have heard this verse abused. I have heard pastors take this verse, I think, a little bit out of context. Right? Well, don't don't call me pastor. Don't call me reverend. Don't call me preacher. Don't call me... Just just call me by my first name. That's fine. Okay? Because Jesus says we're not supposed to be seeking the title teacher. Okay. Jesus is not talking about not taking titles due to our position. All right? The role of the Pharisee was teacher. The Hebrew word for teacher is rabbi. They were a teacher. Jesus is not saying that you can't call the rabbi rabbi or you can't call the teacher teacher, right? Because, you know, when I was in elementary school for that first, oh, I don't know, nine or 12 weeks before I finally learned the teacher's name because I am so horrible with names, how do you address the teacher? Teacher, (laughs) right? Jesus isn't talking about somebody addressing us by a title. He's talking about seeking that because we are the fount of all knowledge. See, for the Pharisees, they were the interpreters. They were the source of holy living for the Jewish people. No. It's no. They thought they had the corner on the wisdom of God. No. Look at how Jesus puts this. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. What does that sound like to you? That's pride. That's seeking recognition. They love it. They thrive on it. Jesus says, you're not to be called rabbi. You have one teacher. Look, I don't have a problem if people call me pastor. I don't have a problem if people call me by my first name. I don't identify myself as anything other than who I am in Christ. That's why I don't introduce myself as a pastor. Because I don't want people to suddenly think that that means that I stand three feet closer to God than they do. I don't. I'm a servant. Jesus says... (laughs) Call no man your father on earth. Really? Does that mean I'm not supposed to call dad, dad? Am I not supposed to introduce him as my father? No. That goes in direct opposition to honor your mother and father. For your days will be long. (laughs) The only, only commandment that comes with a fatherly promise. Honor me or else. It's the attitude. It has to do with humility. Right? As, <laughs> as I've learned over the years, right? Now, now, he's still dad. But we have a different relationship today than we had when I was living in his house. We are now brothers in Christ. We are the heads of our families. I still look to him for wisdom. I still look to him for, for, for guidance. I still look to him for knowledge for some things because there's stuff I don't know how to do. And I'll definitely accept his help if he wants to climb up on the roof because um, I don't. But he's not my source of existence. And that's what this is talking about. Don't be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. 
What does that tell you about what Jesus is supposed to do? He's supposed to be informing us on how we live, right? Not other people. This has to do with humility. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I've, I've told you before, I'll tell you again, when I stand up here, I've prayed over it, I've studied it, and I think I have done my best to interpret the Scripture faithfully. However, I could be wrong. It has happened before. Which is why I turn to scholars, to teachers, to church fathers, to commentaries, to to Bible studies. When I prepare, I don't just go off on my own because I don't know everything. I don't have the corner on God's wisdom. The more people I involve in the process of me preparing a message, the less likely I am to go off on a rabbit trail that has nothing to do with what God's word has to say. And just in case there was any question how this part of the passage is supposed to be interpreted, Jesus tells us in verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What are the Pharisees known for? Exalting themselves. They're going to be humbled. Right? The Christian life is not a life of pride or boasting. It's a life that is dependent upon God alone for wisdom and strength. Period. Now, up through verse 12, where we just finished, Jesus has been talking to the crowd. He's in the temple courtyard and he's talking to the people that are gathered. Now, this is right after he's asked the Pharisees the question, whose son is the Christ? So the Pharisees are standing there. They're listening. As Jesus says, listen, the Pharisees have a valid teaching office. You need to listen to what they tell you, but don't do what they do. What do you think the Pharisees are doing while Jesus is saying this? Hey, wait a minute. Then he, he specifically, he pronounces a judgment on the Pharisees. I told you he takes on the role of an Old Testament prophet. The language that he uses is just like the language of the prophets. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Curses upon you. You hypocrites. You slam the door of heaven in the faces of those who seek to enter. What a man. It's like for the first part, it was the opening, the opening minutes of a, a boxing match where, where, you know, the boxers are kind of, kind of going around each other and, and, and figuring out where the weak spots are. And then all of a sudden, Jesus goes, boink! Right in the kisser. It's almost like he's saying that, that, that these experts in the law are trying to squash the spiritual righteousness of God's people. I wonder why he would say that. Because that's what they're doing. <laughs> In favor of the outward, empty piety that they were demonstrating. The Pharisees are focused on the physical world. That was, that was Jesus' point here when he said, whose son is the Christ? And they said, well, he's David's son. Well, then how does David call him Lord? Uh, right? They were focused on the physical world. So what kind of righteousness was important? The outward righteousness. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, or it is written, don't do this. Let me tell you what that means. Don't commit adultery. I tell you, anybody who's looked at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Right? So the command against adultery has less to do, I'm not saying it has nothing to do, has less to do with our physical actions and has everything to do with the attitude of our heart. Right? Jesus says the, the, the Ten Commandments say don't murder. I'll tell you, if you've hated your brother unfairly, you've committed murder. 
It has very little to do with our physical actions. It has everything to do with the motivations of our heart. The stuff that the Pharisees have been doing has everything to do with our outward actions and nothing to do with our heart. Nothing at all. Jesus says even when they travel to make converts, they wind up making the person twice as lost as they are. Why? Well, here's the Pharisees' gospel. You must keep the law of God and you must keep the oral tradition. Do like we do. What does that have to do with God's righteousness? Nothing. They trust in their outward holiness. They trust in their keeping of the tradition as adequate to make them acceptable to God. Even at the same time where they, 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 take, the, they take the side road to get around the guardrail, right? Because they didn't cross the guardrail and jump off, they're still righteous. They're still lost. Why is it important for us to pay attention to this? I've, I've drawn this parallel many, many, many times. But I hope y'all catch it today, if never before. Why is it important for us to pay attention to this pronouncement on the Pharisees? In first century Jerusalem... The Pharisees were the people who knew the Word of God. They were the experts in the law. They were the ultra-conservative, super-patriotic, in the synagogue, in the temple, every day the doors were open, debating the finer points of theology, Jews of the day. If they were Americans, they would have been the Baptists of Jerusalem. Think about that for a minute. If they were Americans, they would have been the Baptists. And because of that similarity, because we can look at Scripture and we can see the errors that the Pharisees made, we can see how quickly and how easily they went from an earnest desire to help the people of God not violate God's commands into a slide towards do as I say, not as I do, hypocrisy into the pride of being super righteous and being recognized for it, the hypocrisy of making up ways to avoid doing the things that they taught the ordinary people to do. Because we can see that, we need to watch where we step. A poll was done not many years ago, I've mentioned it before, among the unchurched people in the United States. These are people who do not attend church, many of whom have never been churched. The question is asked, why don't you go to church? Their answer, number one, because the people in the church are hypocrites. They don't love each other. They don't love their neighbors. They don't love us sinners. And most importantly, they don't love God's Word. Why would they make that accusation? Why would they be able to make that accusation that we're busy telling the world how it should feel and how it should think and how it should act, but we don't practice what we pe preach? That we don't love people or care for their situations without seeking to meet their needs or minister to their heartaches. Why would they make that accusation against the church? It's a very easy answer that's very uncomfortable. It's because they're right. Over the, and now I'm just, I'm talking to Christians in the United States. Is this the church universal? No. This is the church in the United States of America. That's where we live. This is the church in Gulfport, Mississippi. This is where we live. 
right? In the course of the last 240-ish years of American existence, we have been exactly what they accuse us of being. The church is arrogant. Yes. Yes, if you don't believe me, listen to some of the arguments that go on between churches, between denominations, between factions inside of a church. Right? We are proud, arrogant people. Because we're right and they're wrong. The church has been uncaring. Boy, that's a tough one. Would you characterize the church as uncaring? I would. At times. The church has lacked compassion. The church has been focused on making certain that we look good. That at least outwardly we're doing all of the right stuff. But when it comes time to minister to people, when it comes time to minister to people who are broken by whatever, whether it be abuse, whether it be divorce, whether it be substance uh, addictions or whatever, when it comes time to minister to those folks, what do we do? We uninvite them because we don't want to be perceived as defiled. When the time came to reach out to women who were seeking abortions. Now, this, this bugs me. This bugs me to no end. Because of how much we work with the Women's Resource Center. Right? I am not pro-abortion. But I would really like to drive to any abortion clinic and find those people who call themselves Christians who are yelling insults and curses upon the women that are walking in. And I'd like to knock every one of their teeth out. Because these are women at a point of extreme need, and what are the Christians doing? Tearing them apart. Even to the point of placing explosives. You want to talk about hypocrisy. You're killing your unborn children, so I'm going to plant a bomb. In what world does that even make sense? We condemn them for murder so we can look righteous. When the time came to minister to those people who were afflicted with same-sex attraction, what did the church do? Yeah. No, you cannot be a part of our church. You cannot come to our church. You cannot be seen in our church because we don't want the world to think that we condone your sin. I'm not making this stuff up. This is straight out of American history. At the same time, we rally behind political parties or political candidates or political causes. We neglect the damages that have been done to the people that Jesus commanded us to love. I'm not saying that we condone illegal activity. No, I'm not saying that we condone sin. No. We need to pay attention to Jesus' curse on the Pharisees because it's not outside of the possibility from our past, our present, or our future reality that we could follow in their footsteps. I'll give you an extreme example in Westboro Baptist Church. You know, the ones who protest funerals for military members because the death of that military member is the curse upon the United States because of all the sin that we have let happen. Who's guilty in the United States for the sins that happen. The sinners. Who's responsible for sharing the one antidote to that sin? The church. We are. If the country is that bad, why? 
Because we ain't done our job. And yet, instead of standing up and proclaiming the gospel to the lost, what do we do instead? We point fingers at those sinners outside. Those people who don't bother to come to church. Those people who who have sinned in this and they do that and they do that and they do that and they do the other thing. It's not our fault. No, we didn't do the sin. At least not those sins. We did one even worse. (laughs) We, as the church, as the, the conservative church in the United States specifically, all right, there are branches... Of, of certain denominations that I will not even grace with the term conservative, barely with the term church. Okay? Because they have openly condoned things that this Bible says are sin. I think there's a problem there. All right? However, there are still believers there. Believers can be wrong about things. Right? Any of you made a mistake today? <laughs> I, yeah, we, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> I, had, I had not even left the house yet this morning before I had to turn around and go back inside because I forgot something. And then when I got on the road, I had to turn back around because I forgot something else. And then when I got to uh, our 7 o'clock prayer time at Bay Vista... I walked in and I set my stuff down and I, I looked at Dave because because I go pick him up in the morning and drive him to the church. I looked at Dave and said, I'll be right back. i got to go to the car. He says, why? Because I'm still wearing my sunglasses. I left my glasses in the car. Right? If I can be wrong about something as stupid as what glasses I'm wearing or I can forget things like my watch or my laptop that has my sermon on it, and I bring it every week, or I wear the watch every day. If I can make mistakes about that, can I make mistakes about things of the faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why Jesus says that we need to come together. Why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering of the church. Why? Because on my own, I will get screwed up. I have lots of testimony from the past five days. Lots. We need to listen to the curse on the scribes and the Pharisees because it's all too easy for that curse to be on us. 